Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. House Bill 147, sponsored by Representative Lowry Snow, Republican from St. George, which would have repealed the death penalty in Utah and replaced it with a possible sentence of 45 years to life, was defeated earlier this week in committee. The debate will go on, however, today on Access Utah. And we're going to be talking with the Senate sponsor, Senator Dan McKay, Republican from Riverton, and with Utah Assistant Solicitor General Andrew Peterson. Mr. Peterson is Capital Case Coordinator for State and Lead Counsel on Death Penalty Cases. We'll review arguments for and against the death penalty. And you can send us your thoughts through the hour by email to upraccess at gmail.com, upraccess at gmail.com. Uh, we're talking with uh, Senator Dan McKay. Uh, he, uh, I think you're the, the Senate's uh, sponsor for House Bill 147, which uh, I think uh, failed in committee. We still want to talk about this. Uh, what would 147 do? I understand this would repeal the death penalty. Yeah, the original plan for SB 14, or sorry, HB 147, was to take the death penalty uh, and you know the death row component off of the table from a uh, sentencing standpoint, and then implement a new sentencing standard to allow, you know, basically three positions. One, it was life without parole. Then there was life with the possibility of parole after 45 years. And then there's life uh, with the possibility of parole after 25 years. And so the thought was that we could still provide prosecutors the ability to negotiate and, you know, work through some of the issues, um, you know, related to the uh, death penalty and these aggravated murder cases, uh, and still provide them some negotiation with it, with additional terms for a life sentence. Um, so, what's the biggest reason you, uh, the two of you are running this this uh, bill? Well, I think in concept, uh, I think we can all agree there are some crimes that are so heinous that you know a death sentence uh, is the only punishment that's fitting for it. Unfortunately, the death sentence really in the country, but but in Utah specifically, is broken. Um, we, we have more people that die of natural causes, and we have victims' families who think that they're anxiously waiting for the sentence to be carried out in any day, and it just doesn't happen. More people die of natural causes, and so uh, you take that, you couple that with the fact that it is more expensive uh, to have someone on death row and deal with the appeals and all the other, uh, you know, specific issues that come along with it. Um, and then, you know, last but not least, you know, we're asking ourselves the question of, are, you know, is this still an appropriate measure uh, for us to be carrying out in the state as a criminal penalty? In the last, you know, I think 40 years, we've had two people sentenced to uh, to death in the state of Utah. It just isn't used very frequently uh, by juries, and it's more, really, the only thing that's really left of it is the negotiating tool. So um, one thing is that it, families seem to be split. There's some families who say, uh, we just want to move on, right? And uh, other mm-hmm. families, including several families who uh, who were there at the hearing on, on Monday night, seemed very, very emotional about uh, this is the only way we can get justice, is if the perpetrator is executed. Yeah, and that is, you know, that's the hard part about all about the policy is the law in its perfect form is dispassionate and blind, right? We talk about that all the time. But it really isn't that way because when the boots hit the ground and, and rubber, rubber meets the road, I guess, 
you know, it is not that cut and dry. There are emotions and there are horrible, horrible experiences and stories behind uh, what many of these people or what all of these people have done. And you, you look at that, uh, you know, you look at their, their families and, and what they've suffered in this amount and in the, you know, since the uh, commission of, of the crime, they suffer. And, and it really, you saw that last night in the hearing. Uh, and, you know, my heart goes out to those families. I'm, I'm grateful that in my life, I can talk about this as a hypothetical and, and in a lot of ways be focused more on the policy than I am on the emotion of it. Are you concerned about uh, the irreversibility of this? Uh, you know, this is a penalty that can't be taken back, right? Is, is that a concern of yours? Yeah, that's, you know, and that's, that's another great point. Sorry, I'm, uh, that's another great point when you think about this, right? We just had um, a gentleman who's been on, uh, on death row here in Utah almost 40 years, and uh, the Supreme Court is now ordering a new trial uh, for the individual because the two witnesses that placed him with the victim uh, are, you know, are recanting their testimony, and they're being told, you know, and there are lots of reasons for why they're recanting. Um, but, you know, there's some nefarious actions by by prosecutors and by law enforcement. And the problem with a death sentence is it's final. And, you know, we, we know since the 70s that, you know, there were over 180 people have been exonerated, like factually innocent, not like, you know, they, they you know, got off on a technicality. No, factually innocent of the crime. And so, you know, the idea that we punish somebody with a death sentence, once it's carried out, we can't undo it. And there's no fixing that. Um, you said, well, I want to talk first about deterrence. Um, proponents of the death penalty say this is a strong deterrent and that life without parole isn't as much of a deterrent. What, what do you say? You know, uh, I don't know. I uh, I look at the living conditions of somebody who's living on uh, who's living in the prison in life without parole, and uh, I would argue in a lot of ways that is much worse than having the certainty of a death. Um, rotting away in a prison in, in, in anonymity, because most people you know recognize a murderer's name who's been sentenced to death row because they become you know, enigmatic in some ways and, and get a kind of celebrity status. Uh, the, the alternative, though, is that, um, you know, someone who gets life without parole, they just kind of disappear into history. And, and, you know, the victims are the ones who are celebrated, as opposed to when someone gets a death penalty, it, it's the opposite. The person, you know, who committed the heinous crime is the one who's remembered, the one who's talked about, the one who makes all the news stories every time there's a you know, a story, and it's, you know, it's tragic the way that that happens. And a lot of the families, you know, sorry, the families who testified last night, some testified to the difficulty of being in and out of every hearing and on every time the person makes the news. And the tragedy of, uh, of the murder recurs, and it's something they suffer over and over and over again with every hearing and every trial. One thing you said earlier in our conversation here and that uh, you and uh, Representative Snow have talked about is death penalty is, is broken, at least in, in Utah. Mm-hmm. Um, if we could fix it, whatever that would mean, if we could fix the death penalty, would you be in favor of it? If I could fix the death penalty, what you'd have to do is 
the only I think the only way that I could probably support a death penalty moving forward is incontrovertible incontrovertible evidence and uh, and you know and a confession of the individual. And once you have those two things, and it's not a coerced testimony or a coerced confession, I think once you have those two things, uh, if you could move it quicker uh, and avoid, you know, the the due, the you know, still protect due process, but avoid the length of time that goes into it, um, I'd say, you know, better off moving forward and and going that direction. I just there is not a path for that to happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, just, uh, I know we just have about a minute or so left uh, with you. Um, it seems to be, you know, this this has been up until oh, uh, you know, recent times, uh, pretty stark liberal conservative divide. But it, it seems like there's more and more conservatives uh, adopting this position of uh, opposing the death penalty. Uh, I wonder why you think that is. You know, I, I don't, I don't know. Um, in some ways, I think that the penalties that we have as a society say more about us than they do necessarily about the criminal. And, and you know, my own personal evolution on the topic, uh, you know, has been long. Uh, I've studied, read quite a bit about it, and, and spent a lot of time just kind of contemplating, I guess, the universe and whether or not this is the government's proper role. You think about, you know, all the things that go into the death penalty, and you ask ourselves, is this who we are? Are we the kind of people, as a country, as a state, uh, are we the kind of people that, you know, insist on eye for an eye? And if that's the case, then, you know, then it's the right policy. And if we aren't, then then maybe we ought to be doing it differently. And I think that's the question that Representative Snow and I are asking, is is who are we? Uh, just a very quick question at the end here. Uh, will you and Representative Snow be back with this next session? You know, Representative Snow has already said that he's retiring, uh, so I think it's, uh, it uh-huh. will fall on my lap. I think there's going to be a lot of conversations over the interim, and uh, we're hoping to do some study so that we've got some background and support uh, on the issue. And then, uh, you know, uh, and then if it's appropriate, we, we might consider bringing it back. Well, Senator Dan McKay, thanks so much for for taking some time with us. Appreciate it. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Okay, thanks. Bye now. You're listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams. Uh, We're only to get about 10 minutes or so out of uh, Senator McKay with his busy schedule. I recorded that conversation yesterday, but to appreciate Senator McKay taking some time. We're talking about House Bill 147, which was sponsored by uh, Representative Lowry Snow, Republican from St. George. And uh, the the Senate uh, sponsor was Senator McKay. Uh, this bill uh, would have repealed the death penalty in Utah and replaced it with a possible sentence of 45 years to life. That was defeated in committee on Monday. But the debate goes on here on the program today. Very important topic, obviously, and, uh, and worth the, uh, the, the talking about. Um, and uh, coming up following a break, we're going to uh, turn to the other side, the, the arguments for the other side. A proponent of the death penalty, Utah Assistant Solicitor General Andrew Peterson will will join us. Uh, we'd love to get your thoughts on this important topic. Upraxcess at gmail.com is uh, the place to send those if you'd like to. Upraxcess at gmail.com. More following this break. Support for 2022 Utah legislative coverage on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members. And the USU Institute for Disability Research, Policy, and Practice. Utah's University Center for Excellence in Developmental Disabilities. 
More information at idrpp.usu.edu. This week in This American Life, a woman goes into a casino, plays blackjack, loses a ton of money, and then sues the casino, which of course raises a question. What? Why is she not liable? It seems like if you go to a casino, that's like, you know what you're doing. Because at the time of those losses, she has... Stories about blackjack this week. Tune in for This American Life Saturday mornings at 10 o'clock on Utah Public Radio. The Utah legislative session is well underway. Governor Spencer Cox has signed at least nine bills into law. High up on lawmakers' priority lists are air quality, education programs, tax cuts, infrastructure, water, clean energy, and affordable housing. Join Utah Public Radio for coverage of the 2022 legislative session from the UPR Newsroom. Hello, listeners. I'm Shireen Gorbani, Salt Lake County Councilwoman. Join us for both sides of the aisle. This is a weekly debate over politics, policy, and big issues facing the state of Utah, featuring voices on the right, in the center, and on the left. That's me. Both Sides of the Aisle attempts to help you understand the important questions facing the residents of this state. We prove that you can still put Republicans and Democrats in a small room and have meaningful dialogue. Thursday mornings at 10 a.m. on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking about the death penalty on the program today. There was a bill, uh, House Bill 147, uh, which would have repealed the death penalty, replaced it with a possible sentence of 45 years to life. That was defeated in committee uh, earlier this week. Uh, of course, important uh, topic. We're talking about it on the program today. We talked earlier in the program with Senator Dan McKay, Republican from Riverton. He was the Senate sponsor for the bill. And uh, coming up, we're going to be talking with Utah Assistant Solicitor General Andrew Peterson. Just want to uh, put this note in there in case you were wondering. Uh, last year, the uh, Deseret News and Hinckley Institute of Politics uh, commissioned a poll about the death penalty uh, among Utahns. And it shows that uh, most Utahns still support keeping the death penalty, uh, but the uh, the margin of support is uh, shrinking from uh, past surveys. 51% in that poll opposed eliminating the death penalty. 40% uh, support doing away with the death penalty. 8% uh, didn't know. That's some information uh, there for you. Uh, so we turn uh, next to, to a conversation with Utah Assistant Solicitor General Andrew Peterson. Mr. Peterson is Capital Case Coordinator for the state and lead counsel on death penalty uh, cases. Uh, and a reminder, you can get your thoughts to us by email to upraxcess at uh, gmail.com. So you, um, you, along with a colleague, uh, penned an op-ed in the Deseret News recently um, res- yeah. responding to House Bill 147, which would have repealed the death penalty. Of course, that uh, was not passed out of committee, may reappear next session. Um, And and the title of this op-ed, this is no time to repeal the death penalty. Uh, Why? Why is it not the time to repeal the death penalty? Well, we didn't actually put that title on it. I see. Okay. (laughs) Uh, I, I actually think there is no good time to repeal the death penalty because I think it serves a legitimate and important role in the criminal justice system. And uh, the primary role that I think it it serves that uh, many, many people agree with is that 
there are certain crimes that are so heinous, uh, that are so evil, that the only proportional response is a like-kind response, which is uh, execution. Uh, there are many grades, many shades of murder, and when you get to the darker end of that spectrum, they they become very horrific. And once you start digging into the details of what some people have done, people's intuitions start to become uh, a little bit more in favor of the the like kind response. And so we're we're not talking about uh, an ordinary sort of murder. I mean, in Utah, we don't execute people for, you know, the the Seven Eleven robbery gone bad or the drive-by shooting that you know kills an innocent bystander. In Utah, the death penalty really is reserved for the worst of the worst, which typically includes something like torture or rape and murder or um, you know kidnapping a woman from her own home or home invasions that that turn very dark. So these are these are the worst of the worst offenders and the death penalty serves to uh, provide something more like true justice for those kinds of cases. In our view, life in prison is not proportional justice for those kinds of cases because then uh, 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 the inmate is essentially serving the same kind of sentence as someone who committed a burglary or distributed drugs or, you know, any number of uh, less horrific crimes. And uh, in my view, that's simply under-punishing the worst of the worst. And justice means giving each person their due giving each person what they deserve. And by that definition, under-punishing someone is as unjust as over-punishing someone. Uh, So uh, those who want to abolish the death penalty uh, say that, uh, you know, horrific crimes, right? That we're talking about just, just horrible, horrible crimes, but that the state should not be you know, involved in, in killing someone. What would you say to that? Well, the people have formed a government. This is the nature of republicanism with a small r. The people have delegated to the government the various functions uh, of, you know, public safety and criminal justice and all of the rest. And um, in a in a republic, uh, the people get to decide what justice means for them. And the people have decided that uh, capital punishment is a, a uh, moral and just form of punishment. So I, I, don't, I don't think you can say that the government shouldn't be uh, involved in executing the worst of the worst offenders when it's the people themselves who have delegated that function to government. There's an additional layer of that as well, which is that typically 
death sentences are not handed out by bureaucrats. They're handed out by the people themselves through the jury system. That's the whole point of the jury system. The jury system is not designed primarily to benefit the defendant himself. It's designed to give uh, control of the criminal justice system to the people. And the people can decide through uh, jurors uh, what is just in any given case. And so um, essentially the jury serves as the conscience of the community. And so when a jury, having heard all of the evidence, unanimously decides that someone deserves to die, uh, I think that is the best evidence of what is just in any given case. There was a very emotional uh, hearing uh, see, Monday night as this uh, this bill got hearing the committee. Family members of uh, victims of horrible crimes uh, spoke, and they they talked about justice, right? Preserve the death penalty. That's the only way we can get closure, get justice. There are other families, of course, who who, who say we just need to move on. Can't be continually tied yeah. emotionally to the to this killer, right? For for decades on end. Um, so, so I guess maybe to respond to that, is is this the only way justice can be served? And, and how much voice do the families get or should they get in these decisions? Uh, there's a no- Yes, there's a number of uh, questions wrapped up in what you just said. And uh, I'll address one of them first, which is um, typically before a, a prosecutor seeks a death sentence in a case, in every case I'm aware of, Um, the prosecutor consults with the family of the victim or victims uh, and tries their best to explain uh, what the road ahead looks like and, and, you know, the many hurdles and and years of appeals and so on. And if a family is unable or unwilling to sit with that and be a part of that uh, for years or even decades, Typically, the prosecutor will not seek a death sentence. Um, Nobody in the criminal justice system wants to inflict ongoing trauma on a a crime victim's family unnecessarily. So if they're unwilling uh, or unable to participate in that, typically a death sentence isn't even sought in the first place. But there's there's a more disappointing answer to your question, which is that with or without the death penalty, uh, families have to live with these cases on an ongoing basis. There isn't a good way to relieve the families of the burden of years or even decades of ongoing appeals. I head up a group of attorneys at the Attorney General's office uh, whose full-time occupation it is to respond to the endless appeals, uh, retrials, re, you know, uh, reviews of non-capital cases uh, brought years and decades after the fact. I did a trial just a, a few years ago uh, from a 2003 murder uh, where the, the man was convicted and, and sentenced not to death in, I want to say, 2004, 2005, and more than a decade later, we had to have another trial on it, and the victim's uh, 
uh, father and sister had to testify and relive the horrific experience. And they didn't have a death sentence to explain that ongoing trauma. And the reality is non-capital inmates have the same, they have access to the same procedures and uh, remedies that capital defendants do. And nobody's, nobody's ever talked about how to, how to alleviate that, how to relieve the families of that ongoing uh, 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 stress. And so the reality is repealing capital punishment would have done absolutely nothing to relieve the uh, years and, and decades of, of stress and, and trauma that families have to go through. That, that was always a false promise inherent in the repeal bill. In your op-ed piece, you uh, talk about one of the one of the reasons you bring forward for not repealing the death penalty. Um, it, you, you talk about justice. We've talked about that. It's, that in some cases, punishment less than death is uh, is not true justice for for some of those murders. Uh, the other uh, point you bring forward is um, an inmate, a convicted murderer may pose a, an ongoing threat. Uh, I guess they could, could commit murder, could commit harm while in prison. Yes. Um, the classic example of that in Utah is Troy Kell. Uh, Kell is a white supremacist who was convicted of uh, capital murder in Nevada. He was not sentenced to death. He was given a life without parole sentence. And while serving that life without parole sentence in Nevada, he attempted to coerce a corrections officer into smuggling drugs into the prison for him. And when she refused, he threatened to decapitate her. And he said, what are they going to do? I'm already in for life. I've got nothing to lose. Uh, after that, he was transferred to Utah to serve his life sentence here. And while he was here, he killed a black man by the name of Lonnie Blackman in a race-related uh, uh, murder. It was a very complex scheme that him and several cohorts uh, uh, managed to accomplish. As I say, they, they were in maximum security, and security was very tight. It took a very highly coordinated uh, team effort to get Lonnie Blackman alone, and Kell murdered him viciously and brutally. This was all captured on camera. He stabbed him with a shank uh, 67 times, including nine times in the eyes. And when you watch the video, uh, he does it very coldly and mechanically, almost like a mechanic working on a, an engine. Um, this was not a, a self-defense uh, sort of thing. This was not a heat of passion sort of thing. Uh, it was the most vicious uh, kind of murder you could imagine. And uh, this was all done under the, the watchful eyes of, of corrections officers who, in that exact moment, were helpless to stop it. The state actually ended up paying quite a large settlement to Mr. Blackman's family for, for his death. And the reason this matters is because the state takes very seriously its obligation to inmates to protect their civil rights. And someone like Mr. Kell 
uh, is a threat to everyone around him. It's, it's impossible to protect uh, other inmates or corrections officers from the likes of Mr. Kell. Uh, and it, it is simply impossible to make society safe uh, as long as Mr. Kell is alive. That's one example. The, the, other, uh, the other useful example to think about is Ronnie Lee Gardner, who uh, was on escape from a previous crime, and he committed a murder, uh, and then he was arrested, and he was brought to the courthouse on that new murder charge, and he attempted escape again. And he murdered, well, he shot, he shot a bailiff and murdered a, a, an attorney in the courthouse in his attempt to escape. And he, and that was the murder that he eventually was convicted of and sentenced to death and executed for. Um, so the reality is no matter how hard we try, no matter how clever we think we are in devising security schemes and, and protecting the public, no one can ever guarantee that a prisoner won't kill in prison or won't kill while they're attempting to escape or out on escape. And we have quite a number of examples of this where inmates have killed either in prison or out on escape. And um, th that is just the, the classic example of, of the need to have the death penalty. Because as, as Kel said, he had nothing to lose. What's to stop him from killing again? I'd like to run uh, a couple of arguments used by opponents of the death penalty by you have you respond. Uh, one, sure. is, one is racial d disparity. Um, I, I'm looking at a report from the Death Penalty Information Center from last year, or from 2020, I should say. Uh, the title, uh, you know, tells you what, what they found in the report. In during injustice, the persistence of racial discrimination in the U.S. Uh, death penalty. What uh, what do you say about that? Uh, well, first of all, it's important to keep in mind that the death penalty uh, death penalty information center is not a nonpartisan clearinghouse of accurate information. They're a highly partisan anti-death penalty group. So one must always take their publications with a grain of salt. The other thing, though, is I, I don't know if the death penalty nationwide is racist, although the United States Supreme Court has considered the question uh, on a couple of occasions, and they've looked at the data and deconstructed it and uh, concluded that uh, the, at least the studies they looked at did not show racial disparity. What they showed was, uh, at best, a disproportionate number of people on death row who were uh, non-white. But that doesn't really answer the question, because the real question is, would a white person having committed the same crime and having the same background as the non-white uh, offender, would that person have received a sentence less than death? And so far, nobody's in, been able to, to demonstrate that. What I can speak more intelligently about is Utah's death row. In the modern era, we've executed uh, seven people in Utah. By modern era, I mean since the death penalty was brought back by the Supreme Court in the 70s. And since that time, uh, only two of the seven were non-white. Those were the hi-fi killers. I don't know if you're familiar with the hi-fi yes. uh, murders. Mm -hmm. They were 
really horrific. Uh, pens kicked in ears, uh, victims forced to drink Drano and then have their mouths taped, sh- taped shut. Uh, uh, I believe there was a rape involved. Uh, it, it strains credulity to think that white offenders would not have gotten a death sentence for those same murders. Uh, and the reality is death sentences are handed out on an exquisitely individualized basis, uh, based both on the circumstances of the crime and based on the uh, character and history of the dependent. And then, of course, uh, after a death sentence is imposed, the Utah Supreme Court reviews the case automatically. And they do an exhaustive review of the case at hand, as well as comparing it to other uh, similar crimes in Utah's history to see if there's anything out of whack about that particular sentence. And they will only affirm the death sentence if they believe that the death sentence is uh, proportional under the circumstances and and does not stand out as uh, something uh, uh, based on, you know, a a prohibited characteristic like race. So I have not seen any evidence of racial discrimination uh, in Utah's death sentences. Mm -hmm. And I perhaps uh, didn't give the, the argument justice by, by choosing death penalty information center. You know, there are you know many studies out there. Um, but we'll, I want to go on to economic disparity. Um, I don't have studies for this, but, you know, you see anecdotally, um, you know, defendants who are poor uh, oftentimes don't get the defense that uh, richer people do. And, uh, you know, you could see... Logically, I don't know if it if it follows in the statistics, but um, you know if you get a better defense, maybe you get a, a sense that not that's not the death penalty. What's your response to that? Uh, well, it simply isn't true. Uh, capital defenders in Utah are the best of the best. Uh, so, for instance, Ralph Menzies, who's currently on death row, was represented uh, at trial by Brooke Wells who was a capital defender at the public defender's office, which may sound a little bit misleading. People sometimes have the impression that our public defenders are overworked and underpaid. But Brooke Wells was highly regarded as one of the best trial lawyers uh, on the defense side in the state. She uh, then went on to become a federal magistrate, highly, highly regarded uh, attorney. Um, Other other capital defendants have been represented by Steve McCoy and Ed Brass, also the best that money can buy. And this is all paid for by tax dollars. So the reality is once a, a prosecutor uh, gives notice of an intent to seek an, a, a death sentence, they are always provided with highly qualified defense attorneys. And um, uh, I have not seen a, a problem in, in the state of Utah with uh, uh, substandard attorneys being being uh, assigned to these cases. So they, they are given very robust, very extensive uh, defenses. What about the possibility of uh, executing an innocent person? This is I don't know if we have any you know, proof that uh, that has been 
done, but uh, this is a penalty you can't take back, right? Is, is that where you? Yes. Um, it, one has to acknowledge the possibility that a, an innocent person could be executed. There, there's no way, of course, to uh, eliminate that possibility altogether. But it's also true that Utah has a very robust system for preventing that. Uh, there's a couple of ways that works. One is we have a much higher than required standard for imposing a death sentence in the first place. Our statutes require a much higher uh, standard for imposing a death sentence than what the Constitution requires or what uh, many other sister states require uh, under their statutes. We also have a very robust system for uh, allowing uh, any inmate uh, to prove their innocence uh, if, if, if they can do so. Um, nationally, there hasn't been a single confirmed case since the 70s uh, of an innocent person having been executed. Again, not to say it's not possible. It, 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 it could certainly happen. But what we are left with is a minuscule chance of executing an innocent person compared with uh, a high chance of achieving something like true justice for uh, people who really do deserve the death penalty. Is the death penalty a deterrent? I don't know. Uh, the National Research Council, which is an arm of the National Academy of Sciences, did a meta-study a few years ago where they reviewed all of the scientific data on that question, and they concluded that there was not good science on either side of it. And they actually warned policymakers not to rely on deterrence uh, to keep or uh, abolish the death penalty. Um, but ultimately, what they found was that there's no statistically significant uh, proof of deterrence. But it strains credulity to think that no one anywhere was um, deterred from committing murder based on their fear of getting a death sentence. Just what everything we know about psychology and human behavior uh, and, uh, suggests that at least some people are going to be deterred. Uh, th there are some interesting anecdotes about this. So, for instance, I, I believe it was Kansas back in the 30s had, um, had repealed the death penalty and reinstated it after it became apparent that people were bringing victims into the state of Kansas to commit their murders. Um, Senator Feinstein uh, uh, from California gave an anecdote where she had she used to be on a uh, on the California parole board, and she had a woman appear in front of her asking for parole who had committed an armed robbery, but the, but the gun that the woman had brought with her to the robbery was not loaded. And Senator, Senator Feinstein asked her about that. Uh, why, why didn't you uh, bring bullets? And she said, well, if, if I uh, killed somebody during a robbery, that would have been a capital case. So... There are certainly interesting and compelling anecdotes, and I, I think just based on what we know about human nature, uh, it, it, it seems likely that people, uh, some people must be deterred, uh, even if it isn't a, 
uh, a statistically significant number. And if, if that's the case, if some people are deterred, then what is the value of those lives saved? And of course, how will we know who would have been murdered but for the death, the death penalty? We'll never know. Just a couple of minutes left here in a way. Um, so we be, you know, I want to end as we began. Uh, in the middle here, I've had you rebut some arguments used by opponents of the death penalty. I'd like to have you uh, here at the end um, state positive of the case for the death penalty. Whatever you'd like to say on that. Well, it's just what I said earlier, that there are some crimes that are so heinous, so horrific, that the only proportional response is death. Uh, some people simply do not deserve to, to live after what they've done. Uh, there is more to it, than, though, uh, which is that in a, in a system like ours, where the government is the property of the people and the people demand a certain form of justice, if they ever believe, if the people come to believe that the government is unable or unwilling to give the justice that the people believe they deserve, then that is the root of vigilantism and lynch law. This was recognized by the Supreme Court in uh, Greg, uh, Greg versus Georgia back in the 70s when they reinstated the death penalty. Uh, they, they situated capital punishment in uh, the, the people's moral intuitions and sense of justice. And if we are unwilling to impose what the people believe true justice involves, then the, the whole system can crumble. Uh, people will uh, seek justice on their own terms rather than trusting a, an ineffectual government to do it for them. So th there's both moral and uh, Republican uh, reasons for, and I don't mean Republican in the sense of the Republican Party, I mean in the sense of a republic, why the death penalty is uh, a, a moral and justifiable uh, form of criminal justice. Well, we'll leave it there. Uh, we've been talking with Andrew Peterson, Utah's Assistant Solicitor General. And uh, Mr. Peterson, uh, you're involved with capital cases as well. What's your title there? I'm the capital case coordinator, so I am lead counsel on all of the current death penalty cases in Utah. All right. Uh, been giving us his perspective on the death penalty. Uh, we appreciate that. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you. You're listening to Access Utah, and uh, as you heard there, we were talking with Utah Assistant Solicitor General Andrew Peterson, uh, who's Capital Case Coordinator for the State, Lead Counsel on Death Penalty Cases. Earlier in the program, we got the opposite viewpoint from the Senate sponsor of House Bill 147, Senator Dan McKay, Republican from Riverton. House Bill 147, sponsored by Representative Lowry Snow, Republican from St. George, would have repealed the death penalty in Utah and replaced it with a possible sentence of 45 years to life. That was defeated in committee earlier this week. Uh, Senator Kay says he may bring that back uh, next year. Of course, the, the debate goes on, not only in Utah, but around the, the country. An increasing number of conservatives are uh, coming around to uh, the idea of uh, repealing the death penalty. We talked about that a little bit briefly with uh, Senator uh, McKay. Uh, you can uh, still get your comments to us 
uh, by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. We'll take a break. When we come back, we'll have our regular Wednesday feature, uh, Beehive Archive. On the next Living on Earth, with climate change, busy beavers are moving into the Arctic. Are animals that move north because of our actions in warming the climate, you know, are those invasive species? I would argue not. They're, you know, they're, they're animals that are just, you know, sort of resourcefully adapting. I'm Steve Kerwood, nature's ecosystem engineers in the Arctic, next time on Living on Earth from PRX. Coming up this morning at 10 o'clock in, on Utah Public Radio. That's in 10 minutes. Pulitzer Prize winner Natasha Trethewey honors her mother and a Civil War regiment in poetry and song. Here, the river changed its course, turning away from the city as one turns, forgetting from the past. The Alliance Theatre production of Native Guard by Natasha Trethewey, next time on L.A. Theatre Works. Tune in Friday night at 9 here on Utah Public Radio. If you're a regular listener of Undisciplined, you've probably noticed some changes lately. That's because Shoshana Buxbaum, who took over as our lead host last year, has accepted a new position with Science Friday. Yeah, Science Friday. We're tremendously excited for Shoshana, even if we are really sad to see her go. But every change is an opportunity, and this change has given us a chance to work with some really great guest hosts. And I'm excited to tell you today that thanks to the support of the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University, we've hired a new lead host. I think you're going to love Nalini Nadkarni. She's an ecologist, a teacher, and a really talented science communicator. And you'll start hearing her voice on Undisciplined this month. It's the Beehive Archive on Utah Public Radio. I'm Megan Weiss. Utah boasts the greatest snow on Earth, but the pristine powder isn't always nature-made. The fake snow saves tourist seasons, but at what cost? Find out more after this. I'm Jody Graham, Director of Utah Humanities. Beehive Archive is brought to you on Utah Public Radio by Utah Humanities with the generous support of the Lawrence T. and Janet T. D. Foundation. We are proud to partner with community organizations to tell Utah stories and hope you will tune in each week for the Beehive Archive. Welcome to the Beehive Archive, a two-minute look at some of the most pivotal and peculiar events in Utah's history. Skiing is big business in Utah. The state's geography allows for a light, fluffy powder that tends to dump hard on the west side of the mountains. But warming winter temps and little to no snowfall can ruin an entire season of tourism for the slopes. As climate change threatened winter seasons, ski resorts began to look for ways to ensure their slopes could continue to get the greatest snow on Earth. Fortunately for ski bums, the adoption of snowmaking technology in the late 20th century allowed Utah resorts to make their own snow and save their ski season in the process. Iron County's Bryan Head Resort took their artificial snow production seriously after struggling with unpredictable winter seasons. The small resort opened in 1965, hoping to take advantage of the rising popularity of skiing by developing a winter tourist economy. However, the average snowfall for the region consistently underperformed resorts in northern Utah. Facing warmer winters, the resort decided to invest in snowmaking equipment in the early 1990s. 
Artificial snow is made by combining water and compressed air, which is then sprayed out of a tube called a snow gun. One cubic meter of man-made snow requires over a hundred gallons of water. Imagine how many thousands of gallons are required for just one slope of snow. The thick layer of fake snow is no match for natural fluffy powder, but snow from a cannon is more predictable. Snowmaking ensures a reliable beginning to the tourist season and more money for the resort towns. Bryan Head wasn't Utah's only resort to embrace artificial snow. By 1990, Park City had a snowmaking system capable of covering 400 acres, making fake snow essential to the success of their ski season. As climate change threatens the future of Utah winters, some experts are questioning the toll that fake snow takes on the environment, namely water use during drought years. Regardless, the demand remains, and resorts continue to invest heavily in snow guns and other equipment to supplement nature's bounty. With more fake snow on the slopes each year, does Utah still have the greatest snow on Earth? Find sources in past episodes of the Beehive Archive at utahumanities.org. For the Beehive Archive, a production of Utah Humanities, I'm Megan Weiss. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah today. Just wanted to give you a note on a couple of upcoming programs. On Monday, it's university holiday, and uh, we'll have a special program in place of Access Utah uh, on Monday. It's a a special hour-long edition of Witness History from the BBC World Service, um, bringing together some interviews looking at the African-American experience. So we'll hear about the Tuskegee Syphilis Study, American new pioneer Dorothy Butler Gilliam, Nelson Mandela in Detroit, NASA's pioneering black women, the godfather of gospel music, and what the Confederate flag represents in America's battle over race. So in this time on Monday, you can look forward to that. Hope we'll help you join us. Then we have a conversation scheduled with Representative John Curtis. Uh, who's a congressman, of course, from Utah. Uh, He is a member of the Conservative Climate Caucus, and that will be the the main thrust of our conversation. Uh, Climate change from the conservative perspective. Uh, Conservative Climate Caucus says that uh, the climate is changing. Decades of global industrial era has brought prosperity to the world, has also contributed to that change. Um, They say climate change is a global issue. China is the greatest immediate obstacle to reducing world emissions and solutions should reduce global emissions, not just be feel-good policies. So climate change from a conservative perspective, Congressman John Curtis on Tuesday. Hope you join us for those programs. And thanks for listening today. This is the 15 things Utahns can't live without during a pandemic on Air Edition. Honest reflections from regular people about the objects and things that have mattered most the last two years. This is Jeannie Thomas. In my 15 things were some tarot cards. And I know sometimes people think, oh, scary, spooky. But I'm a folklorist, so I have an interest in all things folkloric and historical like that. And I know the history. The cards started out as a form of really card playing. They were a precursor to bridge, so they were just a card game. And wealthy Italian families who had money had card decks commissioned, and people painted things on them like how fickle life was, the fickle wheel of life or fortune's wheel. Or they had people and places that they knew painted on them. 
in the 1700s and 1800s in France and England, they became associated with divination and trying to read the future, so to speak. So anyway, I have several decks of cards. And so periodically, I would just take them out. And what I like about them is they're basically, if you know the deck, you know the storyline. It's a story and then the pictures provide you with prompts to fill out the story. So it's basically a graphic novel without the storyline. You provide the story. But when you're worried about something or have a problem, it can help you get out of your head a little bit, get out of your mental cage and think about the big older patterns and remind you that if you feel isolated, that's a universal thing that other people have gone through and what could be some things to help you through that. So I found that actually very helpful to get out of my head and get out of my just daily problems to think about those big, larger patterns when I would pull cards. To learn more about the project and to listen to the rest of the stories, go to upr.org. What are the 15 things you can't live without during a pandemic? We set out to find the answer to that question in 2021, launching a photo storytelling project from Cash Arts, Utah Public Radio, and photographer Maria Ellen Hubner. You have an opportunity to see the results of that project right now at the Brigham City Museum of Art and History. The collection of images will be up from February 12th to June 18th, and admission is free, so we hope you'll check it out. For more details about the project, go to upr.org. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. This is KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, and heard online at upr.org.